Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 68, A German of the Germans. Last time, Fritz Krupp, the current Canon King, had ended his life in the hopes of forestalling the embarrassment and shame that was coming his family's way. In most respects, he succeeded, but not completely. Still, life does go on. Kaiser Wilhelm started looking for a suitable bachelor to marry Bertha, Fritz's oldest daughter, and so give the concern a proper master. But that was for later. Right now, the cannon queen was not old enough to produce the much-needed male heir, so she and her sister, Barbara, were sent off to a girls' school in Baden-Baden. Considering the vast fortune Bertha was sitting on, this girls' school should have been set up for the nobility to teach the young ladies of the finer things, music, culture, proper etiquette, and in all matters, how to be a lady. But this was not that kind of school. One wonders if they existed at all in this practical country. Instead, the sisters learned how to do the everyday, the mundane chores of life, something they would never do again once they left. To be sure, there was a degree of culture, of music, the violin, the piano, but most days were filled with ironing and washing and all things house-cleaning. Very dull, Barbara later admitted. Much later. But getting back to what is important, the concern and its money, their mother, Marga, and Barbara, the younger sister, were simply given huge fortunes in company stock. Berta's situation as heir was a little more complicated. First, she was a female, unforgivable. Next, she was a minor, unfortunate. So, the company would have to become a corporation. That was the only option if Marga was to oversee the company until Berta was old enough to marry and give it a proper leader. So, on July 1st, 1903, Fried Krupp became Free Krupp AG, or Incorporated, to wit, one Berta Krupp was put down as the company's owner and leader. On paper, the Directorum became the Vorstand, the typical name for a board of directors, but this entity was anything but typical. Per the law, stock had to be issued, but Alfred Krupp had laid down many years ago that there would only be one master, one true owner. So, 160,000 shares were printed up. One was given to Marga's brother, probably so he wouldn't sue, after his sister had been placed in an asylum. Three more were given to board members. And the other 159,996 went to Berta, who was currently learning Chopin on a out-of-tune piano in Baden-Baden when she wasn't cleaning. With Berta still four years away from her 21st birthday, Marga was the work's caretaker. She didn't know anything about business, steel, or figures, but she knew people, and used that talent to select the right ones to help run the concern. In her first year as regent, the company had a profit of 30 million marks. It only went up from there. Fritz's suicide and the situation that led to it had undone the board's current leader, Hans Jenke. He was replaced by Alfred Hugenberg, 
a treasury official from Berlin, as Marga would make a point of it to select men the Kaiser approved of. Hugenberg did well, but would have other importance to Germany, specifically in the year 1933, when the future of his country was in play. But that's for later. So the top level of the concern was settled. But what about the lower rungs? The leader's early demise, the rumors floating around, ruined morale, which flew in the face of everything the great Alfred had established. So each morning, Marga would leave the Hugel's small house, she never went inside the castle again, would head for Fritz's office and devote the first half of the day to signing whatever Hugenberg put in front of her. Though, it must be said, he never cheated her. Then, after a quick Spartan lunch, the day was spent looking after the Krapanir, all sixty-something thousand of them. If someone was ill, if there was a death in the family, or even if one of the workers or a family member wished to speak to Frau Krupp, once she found out, a time was set up, and the worker or family member would soon see the Lady of Essen knocking on his or her door at the exact time. That was her spirit of compassion, but she also held the erectitude of oppression. Taking a page from Alfred's book, if a worker came to work, well, not late, but not as early as the others, he would get a note from Frau Krupp, letting him know exactly how many steps it was from his front door to his particular shop or building. If the man was wise, he was never late again. But the Krumpenier were not treated as such because they were below her. Everyone was below her. Marga would make sure Berta ruled over her future husband the same way. After all, it was her daughter's concern. Still, even those who broke the rules of decency found compassion for Frau Krupp. During her regency, Marga set up a school for young ladies who found themselves in the family way and needed to disappear for nine months or so. That this was not so much compassion as it was just good business. There was work to be done. Distractions were to be avoided. The Krupp sisters returned from only one semester in Baden-Baden. They were dutiful, but also teenagers, and the boredom could not be born. So they spent their days following around their mother, helping her take care of the Krumpenier. And Berta would continue this practice up until the last hour of her life, and Barbara equally spent her life in social work, although from a lofty position. As the young ladies were the future of the concern, there was an attempt to teach them the processes, if not the secrets, of steelmaking, but both later admitted that exactly none of it made sense to them. From 1902 to 1906, Essen was in its strangest period, and that is saying something. The works were never busier, the money was flowing in, but no one visited the Villa Hugel. No foreign imperial heads, not the imperial head, Kaiser Wilhelm, nor anyone else. Rumors of Fritz's behavior in Capri and his death still circulated, though the girls knew none of it, so acted as if everything was normal, which made everyone around them uncomfortable. For such a large world, the world of the works, of Essen, 
it was socially cut off, isolated. In 1906, the concern launched the U-1, its first undersea boat or submarine. Berta had a large gun named after her, which we will come back to. Yet no young lady ever wants something called the Grossberta associated with her. And the Kaiser was coming closer to finding the right man for the job of marrying Berta, running the company, and, quite frankly, agreeing to be hired out for stud. The job paid well, and Berta was not unattractive. She looked nothing like her father, but mostly like her grandfather. Tall, lean, strong jaw, and a proud drive that would leave any but the Kaiser flattened behind her. And truth be told, not that it was, but her first loyalty was not to Germany or the Kaiser, but to the works. That had been instilled in her from day one. So when the Kaiser announced his search for her husband was over, Berta would not argue or whine about the unfairness of life. She would take on this responsibility, just like all the others. She would marry, produce an heir, and get on with taking care of her people. Of course, in the privacy of their bedroom, she would inform her newly betrothed of exactly who was the boss. She was Alfred's granddaughter, after all, and the type of man she married had no problem with that. In the spring of 1906, the sisters were on their way to Naples to inspect the zoological establishment set up by their father. As one can imagine, the locals were not looking forward to this meeting. Yet the girls never made it, for the Kaiser had made his decision. When they reached Rome, the Kaiser sent them directly to the Royal Prussian Embassy, to the Holy See. There, a career diplomat, one Gustav von Bohlen und Halbach, 16 years older than Berta and quite shorter to boot, was waiting to meet his future wife. That romance had never been a part of Berta's life didn't matter. That Gustav rarely showed any emotion or gave time to anyone other than to those who could help his career didn't matter. This was their flicked, their duty. Romance had nothing to do with it. Besides, neither one of them would have known what to do had it emerged. Back to work. The wedding was set for October 15, 1906. Would the Kaiser be there? It had been years since he made an appearance and had been invited several times a year since Fritz's death. But there was no need to worry. The All-Highest would be there because he, his brother the prince, the general staff, the army, and representatives of the Royal Navy would be giving away the bride. This was truly a once-in-a-lifetime event in Germany. After the ceremony, Gustav was completely ignored. He was, after all, just the stud. It would be a few more hours before his services were needed. So, during the post-wedding celebrations, all the remarks, all the speeches, were for Berta, the cannon queen. So, when the Kaiser rose, he stated, Mein lieb Berta, I wish you happiness and the constant loyalty of your croppeneer. But, just before he left, the Kaiser made a formal announcement. As this is no ordinary marriage, the bride would not be taking the husband's name, but rather the reverse. From now on, Gustav's last name would be Krupp von Bohlen und Halbach. Furthermore, the name Krupp 
and all the wealth that went with it would be passed on to their firstborn, and then to their firstborn, and so on and so forth. This was made even more official with a thick document sealed in red wax. Then, probably due to drink, the Kaiser told Gustav, So, you've been given the name Krupp, but now, let's see if you can earn it. Gustav would more than rise to the occasion, because he brought with him what attributes had worked for him so far. He never lost his temper or concentration. He was obsessed with means, but cared little for ends. They were for the higher-ups. The sum total of the man's life had been based on self-discipline, efficiency, and promptness. Everything else was literally a waste of time. And that was inexcusable. Gustav never talked to anyone beneath him, except to give an order, and never said anything to someone above his station other than, Jawohl. When younger, Gustav had done his time in the cavalry, obtained his law degree, and then, in a calculated move, stepped into the civil service. He spent time in the United States and China, but learned nothing of the people there, or their culture. To do so would have been disloyal to Germany. In essence, if one didn't know any better, they could have assumed that Gustav was nothing more than a younger clone of Alfred. He as well had no time for representative government or progress. The all-highest's will was all, which is pretty much what Wilhelm said when he came to power. And now that he was ensconced in the Villa Hugo, it was time, it was always time, to get to work. The man Gustav would become a legend in his own lifetime for being on time. He was truly a German of the Germans. Breakfast began at 7.15. If guests were just one minute late, they would find the door to the dining room closed. They would have to wait until lunch. This repast lasted for 15 minutes. Exactly. Then Gustav made his way to the waiting carriage, or car, starting in 1908, and expected it to be moving as his second foot left the ground. His workday was no different. Each minute was accounted for. The man could and would write up lists and check off deeds done, just like Alfred in his prime. Dinner went from 9 to 9.50, yet if there were guests, it was brought to a halt five minutes earlier to make sure the Herr and Frau of the house got to bed on time at exactly 10.15, because their workday was not over. And here, Gustav's nights were just as productive as his days. Exactly nine months and 28 days after the wedding, Berta gave birth, praise the Kaiser, to a healthy son. He was to be named Alfred after his grandfather. And perhaps enjoying it just a little, the 1015 schedule was kept. The results? In 1908, a second son. In 1910, a third son. In 1912, their first daughter. In 1913, their fourth son. In 1916, their fifth son. In 1920, their second daughter. In 1922, their sixth son. This was truly one of the most successful business partnerships of Germany. Staying busy, overseeing the works and producing heirs, Gustav still managed to pencil in time for his children exactly 60 minutes of time each week. 
So this allotment could not be wasted on heart-to-heart chats or expressions of love, which Gustav considered a sign of weakness. No, this was a time to train the children in all that was important to Gustav and the concern, duty, discipline, and promptness. On the third floor of one of the villa's wings, a toy train model was set up. Yet it was very elaborate. It outdid and outperformed most of the real trains in Europe. Gustav, of course, as the master of the house, ran the transformer. The children, until they matured, were allowed to watch him. The other siblings were responsible for the timetables of loading and offloading imagined passengers, supplies, or cargo. Gustav would have the train pull up to each station on time, and everything else had better be ready to go. And the children strove to be punctual for their part. This was their father, after all, and he and their mother were the ultimate authority, not only over them, but over everything they had ever known or seen in Essen. If one wonders did Berta have any concerns of how her children were being raised, her answer would have been, Nine. She was in lockstep with her master, and did to the house servants as Gustav did with the children. She would follow them and time their work, judging by how fast she would have gotten the job done. Also, as the servant quarters for the men and women were in separate wings, with an iron gate in between them, literally, Bertha would sometimes hide in the darkness and wait to see if someone from either wing tried to cross the barrier. If they did, they were fired immediately. It seems that one semester at the girls' school was paying off after all. There is more of this, of course. The clock ran their lives, or rather, the clock was used so the ever-growing Krupp family could get as much out of each day as possible. But Gustav was human, if one looked hard enough. He did have one passion, and it was not the 1015 ritual. It was horse riding. As more money came in, and it did, the castle was added on to. A moat was put in, turrets were added. But it was the stables where Gustav loved to be. A part of each day was spent on the back of a horse. Soon the stables held four limousines, but also some of the finest horse flesh in the world. As the boys got older, they were expected to share their father's time and love of riding. The girls were allowed to sleep in on Sundays, but the men of the house would be out inspecting the grounds from the back of a horse. During the same year that Berta got married, so did her sister Barbara, but there would be no double wedding. The Kaiser wanted all the focus on, well, besides himself, on the true owner of the works. The other couple, soon after, toured the United States and had a great time. All of the rich enjoyed this time in Europe and the New World. Money was being made, travel was becoming ever more sumptuous and faster. At the end of Barbara's U.S. tour, she and her husband dined with the Kaiser's U.S. ambassador, Count Johann Heinrich von Bernstorff. Being a well-traveled man, he regaled the young couple with stories of London and Cairo. But then the ambassador, after (coughs) coughing delicately, the universal signal that his next subject was of a delicate nature, 
Von Bernstorff asked if they knew anything about the rumors he had heard of Krupp's new undersea boat, specifically U-18. The newlyweds replied, like deer caught in headlights, No, Ambassador. The older man continued. He had heard that the keel had recently been laid and that it would have enormous torpedoes with a range of 6,000 yards and a speed of 40 knots. Again, the young couple could only shake their heads. And Tilo Wilmowski, the groom, had recently become Gustav's deputy, as the sisters demanded that their families see each other often. Gustav had done what he was told and made the offer. Tilo said yes to this because it would make his wife happy, but he would never be a blind servant to the concept of might makes right. So it makes sense that he was left out. The ambassador was about to give up on this fishing expedition, but added he had also heard that the Reich Marine was considering the idea that when the next war came, and everyone knew there would be a next war, that the submarines would be used to sink enemy merchant vessels, thus destroying their property, their profits, and their supplies. The couple was shocked, considering that ocean travel was the only option at the time, and that if this were to happen, Germany would be hated by every developed nation on the planet. The ambassador seemed, or pretend to seem, relieved. His final thought was that, after his time in London, with all that he had seen firsthand of Britain's naval might, their response to such a tactic would not bode well for Germany. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So as you know, this is the last day of the month. Sorry, this is coming out at the end. And there's still one more episode to come for this month. So that will be out in the next day or so. I'm sorry, the holidays completely threw me off but I will make up for it as soon as I can and put it out. So just please bear with me. I appreciate you listening and the support. Um, it means so much to me. I just, just give me a couple more, 72 hours, and I will get this out to you as soon as I can. Because now we're going to get into World War I, and you're going to be amazed how much the Krupp family is intertwined, obviously, in the aspects of World War I, certainly World War II, but here their significance will be felt as well. So again, thank you for your patience.